like you to open your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1. And uh, I want to look with you this evening out of James, tomorrow morning out of James, before I fly out to Florida tomorrow night. Uh, so I'll be at the airport when you're here, praying for you. But, uh, so, but in my sessions tonight, tomorrow, we want to look out of James. And I want to look with you this evening uh, at a probably the most significant passage yet in James, which is the climactic statement of a little section that he's given. Uh, quickly, just to kind of familiarize you with James a little bit before we say a couple other introductory notes, is that James um, is a tremendous figure. In fact, um, I'm probably just getting in on this, but it's, I think it's kind of neat that James, in certain Bible study circles, if you're like really nerdy, like Nathan and I, and for the record, he's a little, just a little bit more nerdy than I am, okay? But um, if you're in those Bible study circles and you read expositional magazines and journals and those kind of things, James is, is becoming a really interesting topic among scholars. And I happened to enter into the study at that time. In fact, there's a new book out. It's, it's called Before Bethlehem, which is a study of his life. Uh, he's just an intriguing figure. He was the half-brother of Jesus. Um, this guy would have watched Jesus grow up, which I think is just really cool. Um, and he wasn't an instant buy-in. In fact, through the Gospels, you're under the impression he's at odds with Jesus, especially in John 7. James is in that brother group where they're coming to Jesus saying, listen, you're running about this whole Messiah um, you know, uh, platform, this whole Messiah office, you know, which would have been their kind of president of, you know, or vice president in terms of politi politics. He said, you're running about this whole Messiah thing wrong. Anyone who wants to become a public figure, you got to get out there, man. And there's this great tension between he and his family in chapter 7 expressed other places when his mom and, uh, his mom and brother show up and Jesus doesn't even go to embrace them. And, and so he's, see, he wasn't an immediate buy-in. It wasn't until, and we don't know when it was, Okay, at least from a scriptural perspective and most of what we have in church history. Is, but at some point, after Pentecost, something radically changes in this guy. And he steps into, which is what we desperately need. And I think it's everything Nathan said tonight. James stepped into his calling. He stepped into the shoes of who God created him to be. Just unequivocally, absolutely thoroughly just got captivated with the message captivated with the perspective of Jesus just wrapped up in him and he becomes the he becomes the pastor of the most influential church ever okay but at this time especially uh, the first church in Jerusalem the very first church that was there head of the Jerusalem council he has a tremendous um, voice nonetheless uh, you know obviously he, um, not all the disciples' letters and all of them wrote are recorded, are given, uh, or at least find a place in what we call Scripture, James does. And it's interesting to note, we've noted this before when I've presented this in the past, but for refreshment, uh, in the opening statement of verse 1, the last half of verse 1, so ver uh, I guess 1b, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes, it's Jewish language, but when he's writing primarily, most of the church was Jewish that he's writing to, okay? Gentiles are going to come in under Paul. It's going to be really, you know, it's going to be huge. And it's going to grow, but primarily he's writing. He's writing to Jews, okay? And this probably traveled around, this letter traveled around to synagogues. 
And, um, but what's important is that James, who is the pastor of, of Jerusalem, he's not writing to his church. He's writing to the global church of his day. And what he's doing, which is so huge, he's reminding them, which is what Nathan just talked about and is what we're going to talk about. He's reminding them of who they are. Um, I think it's very appropriate how uh, I wrote it down, among other things, uh, how Nathan began. He says, you know, do you realize this? You are in a battle, okay? And one of the, and how you want to use that language, and, and I know that probably can be taken in different, uh, kind of uh, received differently by different people and different theologies and backgrounds and doctrines. But I think we've, we forget that. I really do. And, and I live in a church world. I'm in church four to five days a week, and that's my, been my life for almost two decades now. And I find myself, I find myself frustrated, which is one of the reasons I call, I call and vent to Nathan regularly. But I find myself frustrated when I come to church and you meet people that seem to come and just from watching them, they, they seem to be distracted. They seem to have forgotten. They seem to have got off track. It's, it's the things that they're, they're captive, captivated with and been out of shape about are just, you, you want to look at them and say, how could you be been out of shape about that? How could that bother you when you have this over here? I mean, you, you, you sit like a bump on a log about eternal things, about message things, and yet things that don't matter at all just, just absolutely consume your life. And I don't think they're evil. I think they've forgotten who they are. And it's significant that just, you know, not even 25 years after the death of Jesus, James is writing to the global church of his day saying, listen, this is who you are. Okay? This is who you are. And uh, I, I, it's really significant when you walk through, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18 um, this evening. Verse 1 is, is kind of an overarching, we, we treated it as a section, I've treated it as a section in and, of it to itself, in and of itself, because he's talking about the nature of a child of God. The number one term to describe a believer in James' book is family terminology. We, we, we don't, you know, there's no formality. We, talk, we call God Father. Uh, we call one another brothers and sisters. That's the language. But in terms of our nature, in terms of who we are, in terms of our identity, it's servanthood language. Because when you're filled with the spirit of Jesus, who was a servant, God, who is not self-oriented, self-focused, you're going to be a servant. So it's the number one way to, uh, to identify a child of God, Okay. If, if, if you are a child of God, you are going to be a servant. So that's, that's the overarching kind of concept of his book, and he puts that in his first verse. The second section begins at verse 2 and extends down through verse 18. And some of the language, and we're going to deal with this this evening and tomorrow morning and probably as we go through the book, some of the language is really um, activity-oriented okay, in James, which is why people have written, if you want to know what to do as a Christian, you read the book of James. But it's not just he's telling you, as a Christian, you need to do this. He's talking about the, the, the direct consequence of being a believer, okay? If you, are a, if, if, if you are a tree and you walk into church on Sunday morning, and, you're, and I've used this several times, and, and you had apples on you, we would call you an? Okay. If you looked at us and said, no, I'm a peach tree, we would say, you're silly, okay? Because you have apples all over you. Okay? 
So a tree is going, an apple tree is going to naturally produce apples, period, okay? It's naturally going to produce apples. In fact, you say, well, not all trees produce, yeah, and if an apple tree doesn't produce apples, it's cut apart and thrown into the fire because it's useless, okay? See, if you come in and you're wearing a suit and tie and I say, hey, where you been? Oh, I just got out of the pool. I'd say, wow. I don't think so, because a natural consequence of getting in the pool is you get, okay? So you don't get in the pool and say, I'm going to get wet. It's a natural product of that. So he does talk about these are the things that happen in a believer's life, but they're not just activities. They're not things you need to do this as a Christian. They're the, un, um, they're the unavoidable consequences of being filled with the spirit of Jesus, period, okay? So verses 2 down through verse 18, I'm going to give you this, just a, a brisk walkthrough, um, he begins describing who we are, which is um, another thing you need to know about James. He's extraordinarily aggressive. And I've, I'm, um, I'm not so convinced that he's just kind of like a bully writer or that he's just screaming. I think this really matters to him, okay? I think, I think it really matters. You talk to somebody about something that really matters to them, and it's going to be expressed through them. This stuff really matters to him, okay? And so he begins um, with strong grammar in verses 2 through 4, and the emphasis of 2 through 4 ends at verse 4 with being mature and complete, not lacking anything. If I remember correctly, the word's telos, which is perfect. When he says you need to be mature and complete, that's the word perfect. Not lacking anything, that's the word perfect. So he's saying you need to be perfect, being completely perfect. Okay? Not that you need to do perfect things, but if you want to know what God wants, you know, wants for you, what, how he wants to transform you, the motivation of him moving in your life, is he wants you to be the perfect person, okay? He wants you to be perfect, okay? Because when you are the right person, you're going to do the right things, okay? When you are a peach tree, you will produce, okay? See, if you're an apple tree trying to produce peaches, it ain't going to work. So he wants you to be the perfect person, mature and complete, not lacking anything, which is, of course, the whole purpose of trials, which is to reveal who you are. I mean, that's what he says. I mean, he says, listen, consider it pure joy when you face these trials, which are these proving grounds, because it reveals who you are. And that has to happen in order for perseverance to come about, because you're never going to persevere if you're not the real thing. Sooner or later, the real you is going to get out, is what he says. So God's desire is for you to be who he's called you to be, to be the right person. Now, verses 5 through 8, he enters into this subject of wisdom which wisdom can be confusing, and really what we're talking about in terms of wisdom is his perspective. God wants you, and I don't know if you've thought about this, and we, you hear this from this pulpit quite often. People talk about, you know, being in Jesus. You know, the big deal is Jesus. I wonder at times if you've heard that so much, if you forget what we mean by that, okay? It's being, I'm not shared this too much just because, Never really fit, I guess, but 1995, moved back to Indiana, walking through all of this turmoil in my life, feel God dealing with me, all of this stuff. I start going to this little church on the backside of the reservoir where my mom had went and my dad had went before um, they split up and the family spun apart. It's the only place I knew to go, so when I moved home, I went there, and Primarily, me and a bunch of senior adults, which is great, and uh, lived with one of the ladies who went to that church. Normal, 
run-of-the-mill Wednesday night. I went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night because I had nothing else to do. And uh, sitting there on a Wednesday night, there's 10 of us. Pastor starts preaching. And uh, at the beginning of his message, my heart begins to beat. And it was that kind of heartbeat. I don't know if you've ever had this before, and I don't know if this is how everybody feels when they get saved. But it was so loud, it was in my ears. I mean, it was, I couldn't, I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear. I didn't hear what the pastor was saying. And it started at the beginning of the message and went all the way through. I mean, it was just this, it was violent is the way I, I remember it. And he started to pray. And this is a Wednesday night prayer meeting, okay? There's 10 of us there. Seven are asleep. Me in the front row <laughs> beating, okay? Pastor's still awake. I mean, seriously, that kind of a thing. And it was overwhelming for me. And I got up out of my seat and I went down to the altar and I, and I began to pray. And um, it was short. And I knew exactly, and it is a long backstory, but I just said, I, I give you my whole life. I just, I, I'm yours. And uh, I stood up, he, and he had been praying, all these older men, they'd woken up, and they were coming down to the altar. And they were, there's like five of them, five of these old timers, and they're coming at me. And they go, where are you going? I was like, home. That's literally, I mean, that's what it says, I'm going home. They said, no, you're not. We got to help you pray through. I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and they grabbed me and they did their thing, but I was already done, you know? And I remember walking outside, true story, true story, uh, verbatim, 100% true story. And I remember going outside and everybody left and I just stood out there in the parking lot and it's, um, honestly, for me, it was, my eyes were opened. My eyes were opened. I, I saw different. I was different. My life was different. And it wasn't, as much as, and I've worked through this and still don't have it all the way figured out, but it isn't so much that I'm changed, it's that I was no longer living independent from Jesus. It's he, he was the big deal. It was his perspective. It was his life that I'm getting dragged into. It was, it was, it was his longings and passions and hungers that were, he was opening my eyes to and from the inside of me. I was no longer, it was, he was the big deal. That's, that's what we're talking about. That's what James is talking about. Not, I go to church. Not, I'm not bad. Not that kind of language. It's, and it's, it, he says after God wants you to be a perfect work, that's only possible in verse 5. He says, if any of you needs wisdom. You have to have wisdom. Wisdom is his perspective. You have to have him living in your life, opening your eyes, guiding, directing, leading, pulling you into his perspective. Verses 9 through 11, he talks about resource. And it's about the uh, rich man versus the humble, per or the rich person versus the humble person. Not in terms of money, but in terms of resources. And you don't have to have any natural, physical, fleshly resources to uh, live the life that God's called you to live. Okay? You don't have to have any of that. Okay? Uh, it's not a, not a prerequisite. Uh, moving to verse 12, and he talks about this blessed life of being used by him. Okay? Uh, and with that's going to come the death of your plans, your desires, your comfort, your priorities, what's best for you, and you become used by him. Okay? And there's a cost to that, verse 12. Verses 13 through 15 is all about temptation, and you, you're, you are your own worst enemy. Amen. And then verses 16 through 18, which is the climactic statement of this first opening section, which is not about what you do, but about who you are. Okay? See, who are you? 
I mean, really, when it comes down to it, who are you? And it, it has to be more than just title. I'm a Christian. It's, see, what consumes you? And, I, and we got to move on to this, but I, I, I'm walked back into Revelation, been studying there for some time, and it's interesting. When you get in the book of Revelation, he identifi- identifies people. There's a, there's a huge stress in Revelation with getting new names. But it's not like he gives you a new name. It's the name he names who you really are. So you may not be John anymore or Bob anymore or Sue anymore. You may be, you know, witness, okay? Uh, you may be uh, whatever that, you may be uh, transgressor. You may be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, a liar. You may be thief, okay? He names you. It's, it's, what, it's who you are. So it's not title stuff. It's, see, what drives you? See, what makes you tick? What consumes you? Who are you? What are you, what are you giving your life to? He begins in verse 16 with, again, his, his tone and his approach is extremely aggressive. My translation, NIV, says, don't be deceived. The Greek word, uh, which is literal translation, led away in our, in our uh, language today, um, you would translate it, uh, don't get distracted. And this is something I stumbled on recently after all these years of working with the language. The language that James is using, okay, and some, some language is more or less this, but the, Jane, the language that James is writing in is not classical Greek. <laughs> this is so cool. Prepare your, this is really cool. The language James is writing in is not classical Greek. It's Koine Greek. Is it really? Yeah, classical Greek is, you know, scholarly. It's classical, formal Greek. They write in Koine Greek, which is common Greek. It's street Greek, <laughs> which is really cool. You're like, what are you saying? You know, what's up with that? That's what I'm talking about, okay? That's what he's writing in, okay? So when you're reading this in their language, they'd be like, dude, I'm telling you, that's this language. <laughs> so whatever you want to do with that. But I think it's really cool because when he says, listen, and, he, and his opening statement, he's saying, listen, don't get distracted. It's what he's, and it's, and it's right on the heels of what temptation is all about, Okay? It's this big distraction. Don't be led astray. Who are you? My, my wife hammered this into my head as a young parent, and this came natural for her. But it was in our, um, it did, there's things that she taught me. But in terms of our parenting our kids, we were constantly reminding our kids of who they are. And it was my personality to come up and say, dude, you idiot, you know, you're terrible, you know, and just kind of, you know, yell and be very vulgar and not profanity, but you can be vulgar without being, you know. And it was the alternative, what we, what we began to do and what we're doing now is we come up and say, listen, this doesn't remind me of the CJ or the Elena that I know you are. This isn't who you are. You've gotten distracted from the little boy I know you are. See, you're getting, you've gotten distracted. This over here has blinded you to the little girl that we know, that we know God has made you. And it's this, this is what he's saying. He says, listen, come on, who are you? Don't be distracted. Now, it's interesting, after he says, don't be distracted, there's the, in my translation, is translated gift, every good and perfect gift. And there's, this is really um, a difficult translation because they purposely leave out some words that they think are unnecessary due to the concept. And it's a product of dynamic equivalence and how the NIV translates um, the original language. 
the emphasis in every good and perfect gift actually is every good act of giving and every perfect thing that is given. So the emphasis is not just on something that's given, but it's on the motivation behind what is given as well. Now, there's, scholars are divided on this primarily uh, in how they understand what he's saying. Okay, Because it's easy to say every good and perfect gift comes from above, and he says from the Father of the heavenly lights. And then he starts talking about who we are. And so it's, it's really easy to say what God is saying, this gift of salvation, it comes from him and it's good and perfect. And you can translate it like that. But what he's really doing, which incorporates this, is that there is a whole new standard of good and perfect in terms of something that is given and the motivation uh, of its giving. Now, when we're talking about something that's given and, and what is actually given, that is so inclusive of the Christian life that I don't think we should translate this gift because I give you my time. I give you a break from me. So in giving you my time, I give you time with me, and then I give you a break from me. I give you things. I give you ideas. I give you space. I give you my, my uh, I, I, you know, I, I can give you an, an object. I can give you, uh, you know, something that's, that's an idea. So really, when he's talking about the standard of, of, of giving and the motivation for that giving, he's not talking about something in particular. He's talking about the things that flow out of your life. That makes sense? Okay? And that's really what's going on here. He's not talking about just a certain thing. He's talking about what comes out of you, what God wants to spill through you, what is being spilled through you. And there's a whole new standard of how we judge that, not just what is given, but the motivation for giving. Okay? See, someone gives you money, that's great, but why would they do that? See, is there an angle in it? See, someone comes up and is nice to you. That's wonderful, but what's the angle? See, what's the motivation for that? All of that's being called into question. Someone wants to spend time for you. That's time with you. That's wonderful. But what's the motivation for spending time with you? Okay? So it's, it's, it's not just something that's given, something that flows out of your life, but it's the motivation for that. He, 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 he pinpoints that as believers, as Christians, reminding us of who we are, don't get distracted, there's a standard. Are you with me? There's a standard for not only what flows out of your life, but the motivation of what flows out of your life. And that standard, he says, is from above. Every good giving and perfect what is given is from above. I want you to turn back, and I'll explain this as you turn. I want you to turn back to the book of John, chapter 3. One of the, uh, one of the things that's been helpful for me, as, as I've kind of been, over the last years, familiar my, familiarizing myself with the New Testament, is the similar language, the similar street language, um, that the writers of our New Testament use. Um, we're cross-style. There's... There's certain terminology we use here and recognize here. Um, and it's similar to language that anybody in a particular group would use. Um, we travel all over the country. There's the way they talk here in the South, and then there's the way they talk in the Northwest. And then there's the way they talk in the Northeast. There's language they use. 
there's language that teenagers use versus senior adult use. Okay? So as, in terms of these demographics, in terms of these groups that kind of gather around one another, they end up using language that's similar. Now, my point is, is when you get in the New Testament, you find certain phrases that are used by a, a number of different authors. And they all mean the same kind of thing because, again, this is early church. James is, James is just fresh out of the gate of Pentecost. And, 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 and the, the early church, the disciples, this group of 120, and, and, and they're, they're figuring all this out. When you go through the book of Acts and, and chapter 15, and they're trying to figure out what to do with Paul and Barnabas and the Gentiles, and they're, they're talking, and I mean, you, what do we do with this? whole? They're setting the whole thing up, and, and God's leading and guiding, and, and they, they end up using certain language. They, they grab certain terms, and it's shared among all of them. You with me on this? Now, now my point is, is when James says, every thing that pours out of your life, there's a new standard by which we judge that, okay? See, what comes out of you, uh, Paul would call that fruit, okay? He doesn't call it like that. He's a little bit more specific, not just what comes out, but the motivation for it. There's a standard by which the body judges that, okay? And that standard is, does it come from above? And James says, from the Father of the heavenly lights, which is their expression for saying, it doesn't come from this earth. It doesn't come from what we produce. It comes from him. Now, the reason we're going into John is John uses that similar language. And again, we have some difficulties in translation. Because Nicodemus in chapter 3 has come out to talk with Jesus. He's curious about Jesus. Um, he, he notices, I mean, it seems common sense to him that there's something more to Jesus than what his peers, the other leaders of Israel, are suggesting. I mean, come on, no one could do the things. And he says that to Jesus. No one could do the things you're doing unless God were with him. And, and so Jesus looks at him and he says in verse 3, no one can see, okay, the kingdom of God. And see there is not just not see it, it's figure it out, it's put it in a line, it's explain it. No one can do that, in my translation reads in verse 3, unless they are born again, okay? Does anybody, and I, I know the King James, New King James, NIV all read the same, but does anybody's translation read different than, you know, born again? Anybody read different? There's a couple out there, and, well, if it's not even the translation, yours should be annotated at the bottom of your, um, of your page. There might be a little letter after born again. Mine is the letter K, and if you go down and follow and you read K, it says, or born from above. And again, that's the above language. Jesus says, listen, no one can understand. You can't put your finger on it. You can't figure it out. See, the kingdom is never going to make sense to you unless you were born from above. And it's obvious, <laughs> Nicodemus, who's a phenomenal guy, but is not sourced by the same thing that Jesus is. He doesn't understand it, obviously, because he starts saying, okay, so I've got to go back into the womb. Jesus says, listen, stop before you hurt yourself. And he says, that's not what I'm talking about. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says, listen, I'll cut this down a little bit, you know, clear for you. Flesh produces flesh. Spirit produces spirit. Okay? That's the from above, from above language. Okay? And by the way, and there's a whole, this whole chapter is full of this. Even after he gets done talking with Nicodemus, he goes into the Judean countryside where John the Baptist and his disciples are baptizing. Jesus is over here. His, uh, his disciples are baptizing. John the Baptist, his disciples are bent out of shape and everyone's going over to Jesus and his disciples. So his disciples go to John the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples, they go to him and they're complaining. 
And, and John the Baptist explains this in verse 31. The one who comes from above. That's the exact same language that Jesus uses in verse 3. Okay? The born again stuff. He says the one who's from above is above all. Okay? Referring to Jesus. But the one who's from the earth, belongs to the earth, speaks as one from the earth. What flow? And he's talking of himself. See, as good as John the Baptist is, and a, a one who's produced from the earth, Jesus said there's no one better. But the one who is sourced from above, the least in the kingdom is greater than him. So there's this dynamic when we're talking about being sourced from above, and as James uses it, listen to this, as the new standard of what's flowing out of your life, the standard is, is what's produced from him. There's plenty of easy illustrations on this. We hear people, I hear people, and it's, <laughs> it's difficult to talk about it without sounding like, you know, mad at them or that I'm frustrated with them, or that it's ridiculous. But I hear, I hear people within our group, not necessarily this group, but Christians who don't live by this standard of good and bad. Their life is totally consumed with um, football or clothing or work. I, I, I think us former druggies have got a bad rap when it comes down. Uh, when I get to speak to the, um, uh, those in the Lazarus house, and uh, this is the ministry here in this community to, to uh, a specific kind of group of people, I try to, I, first thing I say is, listen, I was literally where you were in 1995. And what I found so interesting out of coming out of that life and being hidden in the church, I find people that's never done drugs and alcohol What's going on inside of them is the same that was going on inside of the people down there that's captivated with drugs and alcohol. Seriously, it's, it's the same thing, okay? It's, a, it's the same kind of a deal. Because, yeah, drugs and alcohol consumed my life and ran my life, and I gave myself to that, and it was all about. But the guy that's consumed with, with sports or the guy that's consumed, the woman that's consumed with her looks or the person that's consumed with money or or. See, you come to people and, and, and they don't come to service because, well, we're going to go out and see the, you know, the game Sunday night or whatever. And I'm not talking about never missing church, but when your church is having some spiritual emphasis, it happens every two years. I mean, they build for this. There's, there's time. It's a dynamic movement of God. God's doing a phenomenal thing. They've prayed. And then someone misses two or three days because of deer hunting. You know, when the season is six weeks long, you think, you, you kind of want to say priorities are a little bit odd there. You see what I'm saying? And the first thing I hear is, well, that's not bad. How do, you, how do you interpret bad? See, how do you define good? See, what, what, what do you give yourself to? Really quickly, I had a guy in Oregon one time trying to make fun of me in front of a group of people about my studying the Bible. And he talked about the programs that I had and the college that I've had and the education and that kind of thing. And that's why you went to college, he said. And I knew the guy, and he actually played in a, uh, this is out in Oregon, he played in a fantasy football league and was tremendous. They had ridiculous a number of people, two or three leagues. He was like ch the champ every week, and he was the stud. And so I responded to him that it's amazing, you know, uh, how wonderful and awesome he was at fantasy football. And then I responded, but that's why you went to college. And his response to me is, no, that's, I didn't go to college for that. I just, I'm into that. And you want to look at a guy like that and say, 
Yeah. You spent five grand on a Bible program? Yeah. See how much you spend on your bow and your gun and your stereo system. And I'm not against stereo systems and TVs and that kind of stuff, but again, see, what's the standard? What are you giving yourself to? And I'm a little bit stronger than, than Nathan is on a couple of things. See, I think it's bizarre to come into a church that's ran 50 for the last four or five times that I'm there. They have the same older group of people that are there who are so wonderful and awesome, but apparently they haven't won anybody to Jesus in four decades. That's bizarre to me. That would be like me coming to you and saying, I'm a psycho, crazy, fanatic football player. You see, you see the game Monday night? No, I didn't watch it. <laughs> Who's your favorite team? I don't have one. Who do you think is going to make it to the Super Bowl? I won't watch it. So you would look at me and say, I don't think you're a football fan. Seriously, do you see that? See, there's a whole new standard of, 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 of good and perfect is what he's saying. He says, listen, don't just, you know who you are. He's explained it from verses 2 down through uh, 15, okay? You're, you're a, he wants to make you a perfect, he wants to fill you with himself. Open your eyes so you hunger for what he hungers for. And you're passionate about what, you're captivated by what he's captivated by. You're driven from the inside. It's consumed your entire life. Don't get distracted. Don't get, because coming to church is not good enough. You can't find that. It's, it's not squeezed in here anywhere. There's a whole new standard of good and perfect. And the standard of good and perfect is what's producing the things that are coming out of your life. What's driving you? What's leading you? What's motivating you? What's driving the, the decisions that you make? Now, he moves into, uh, he moves into verse uh, 18 after suggesting this, and he says, listen, he chose, talking about God, to give us birth through the word of truth. When he says he chose, this is a really neat word, because I don't want you to think that God said, well, here's what I'm going to do. I choose to give them new birth. There's a couple different words for choose in the New Testament, and when you read this, there's a temptation to say that this word for choosing is kind of like you know, uh, someone presents God with ice cream, and you got chocolate, and you got strawberry. And God says, well, I choose strawberry. Okay? That's not this word. There's a word like that, okay? But that's not this word. When it says he chose, the Greek word is translated in other places as planned. And more oftentimes than not, it's translated project. Which means God says, listen, I want you to be perfect. I want you to be consumed with, filled with me, caught up with me, sourced by me. So don't get distracted. There's a whole new standard of life by which you're going to live. See, what's going to flow out of you? What's going to get you carried away? What's going to consume you? What's going to consume your time? What are you going to be passionate about? What's going to, what's going to shape the decisions you make and why you make them? Because God has a, had a plan. He had a project. He put things together really quickly. Um, this was so huge for me as a brand new Christian. Um, and I probably told you this before, opened up the Bible book in there with my name on it. There's a backstory to Jeremiah and that name that I didn't like and kind of chuckled to myself that now I'm a Christian and whoa, <laughs> there's a book in there. It's one of the first books I read, you know, and I didn't read it all, but because it was like, you know, it's pretty boring. <laughs> I said, I'm a believer, you know, and um, 
So, uh, but the first, the first opening chapter was overwhelming. This scared-to-death, wimpy, little intimidated priest named Jeremiah, very similar to the way Moses was, trying to get finagle out of, which is what most of the prophets did, uh, on this message that God wanted uh, him to give Israel about Babylonia coming in. I mean, they're going to come in, and it's going to be terrible. And Jeremiah's weeping and crying. And God says, listen, <laughs> let, me, listen let me tell you who you are. It, it's the same. The same stuff we always hear. He says, let me tell you who you are. Before you were born, he said, I knew you. I had this, I've had this thing brewing forever. I chose you to be a herald. That's what the word is. A herald to your generation. And when I read that, it was like hot water ran through me. Not that I'm Jeremiah the prophet, but that with my name there, and my call, it was like he had his call for his hour. I have my call for my hour. And it's not something that I was, you know, just kind of like chosen for. I was fashioned for this hour. Who are you? Are, are you are, who are you? See, I, I want to come, I, I want to be there the moment where your eyes are open and you finally, it's like just every, it's like scales fall from your eyes and you realize this is why I'm put on this earth. And I'm giving myself to that. And I've said this. I've said this every time I come to the Lazarus Project. So when I stand up to preach, they all run out and leave. And most of them did. Because it's, the deal of that is the same thing that happens with everyone. See, who are when you recognize who you are, you're not going to stay there. You may, it may be a mission. That may be God's plan for your life. But see, who are you? He's got a dream for you. And that's probably not going to look like my dream, but it's before the foundation of the world. He planned. He projected, he said. It's weighty. It says he planned. He projected to give us birth. The word there for birth is literally, it's the only time it's used in the entire Bible here. And that's difficult to talk about the significance of that. But it literally means he engendered you. Which it's, it's more than just created. It's there is no one else like you ever. <laughs> which is crazy. That God said, we have to have a Jeremiah. Amen. <laughs> I've been telling people that for years. <laughs> God said, we've got to have one of you. And he's got to have one of you. You can't rely on me. I'm not your, and I, I, we tell this to youth pastors and families all the time, I, you know, I'm not your kid's parent. You are. Seriously. I'm not going down, and, I do, and, I, and, I, and I'm not here enough. Stephen can't win this town. He's called to equip you to win it. And I wonder what's going to happen in 30 or 40 years when he dies, and we move on. Seriously. Can we survive without him? Who are you? Seriously. I mean, do we sit back and... Or is, is, there, is there something bigger? He engendered you. He created you. He handpicked you. Created, I mean, just... It, gifts, talents, abilities. Set you where you are. No one can replace you. You can't pawn that off where you're at. Don't get distracted with why you're down at your job, with why you're in the neighborhood that you're in. He engendered you. 
And he says he engendered you through the word of truth, which is another fancy way, because that, that is basically saying the good news of... Paul says the word of truth basically is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the gospel. How did that engendering take place? God created you, fills you with his spirit, and you become who he's called you to be. Now, there's a word that's missing that's not translated, which is the word arche, apo arche, which is out of the beginning. And Jesus is the beginning, the beginning and the end. In Revelation, Jesus is on the beginning of God's creation, which means if you want to know what human beings were to look like from the beginning, Jesus is it. You want to know what Adam was created to look like, how he functioned, what was going on in him, how he related to God? Paul calls Jesus the second one. Jesus is what Adam looked like when he was created before sin. And so literally this, this, this plan, this project engendering through the gospel is establish a whole new group of people that he also calls us in verse 18 at the end of it to be a kind of first fruits of all that he's created. God has called you to be the first fruits of a whole new beginning of individuals who are living out of the resource and dream and passion, getting carried away with the things of God that are significant for our day and time. That's uniquely prescribed, detailed for each one of us. You may not realize this, but you are in a war. You are, you are born with significance and purpose. What keeps me from being distracted? What, what, keeps, me, what keeps me where I'm going is I, I just know who I am. I finally found out in 1995. I'm his. Seriously, that's as simple as it gets. I'm his. I operate out of how he sees me, not how you see me, and out of his dream for my life. That's not only led by him, but guaranteed by him. It's provided by him. There's hope there. There's, there's lack of fear there. There's comfort there. There's a different standard of success that's found there. I, I, do you have that? Do you have that? See, my standards of success isn't the number of meetings, and he's talked about this forever to us, but it's not the number of meetings that I had or the size of churches or, or if I've written a book or if I'm on. See, that's, that's not the standard. That, and there's standards like that, but that's not the standard I'm caught up in. See, I'm in, I'm in his standard. You, you understand you're no different. Jesus gives this parable about this, the judgment. And he says there's going to be people that are going to say, Lord, Lord. And he says, I'm going to tell you what it's about. It's going to be like a, a master of a house in talents. And if you want to understand talents as abilities, you can, but I think it's really more about area to, areas of stewardship and what we're going to give our life to. And he's going to come back, and there's this one guy that he calls a wicked servant. Not because he was evil. He wasn't selling drugs out in the church parking lot. He just lived distracted. Never gave himself to that area of stewardship. He was a goat and Jesus was a sheep. The things that sheep did, he didn't do. What goats were into, or what sheeps were into, and how sheeps looked at the poor and the naked and the blind and the hurting. And he just, he wasn't evil. He just didn't, he just, that wasn't. Came to church every Sunday. 
There's a whole new standard. Lord Jesus, we want to be uh, captured that. I was talking to a good friend of mine yesterday as he was helping me with my bus again. And we get our identity from a variety of things. I will not have my identity come from my past. I'm not going to walk around with a chip on my shoulder, showing off my tattoos, retelling my story. Because my identity is not one who came out of drugs. You're my identity. My identity is not the fights that I've been in. My identity is not... You're, you're my identity. The horrible things that have happened to me in my life will not define me. You're my identity. See, I'm not the, the one that was molested. I'm not the one that was... Uh, you know, abused. I'm not the one that was lied to. I'm not the one that was taken advantage of. I'm not the one that was that uh, was the uh, victim of having a father ripped out of his life. That's not going to define me. You're going to define me. There's a whole new standard of life for me. It's what's produced by you. It's what comes from you. I do so much. All cliches out the window. I want to live out of your perspective. I do. I, I want to be. I want to be consumed with what consumes you. I want you to birth that inside of me. I want you to open my eyes to before the foundation of the world when you planned and project and stuck me in this point in your plan. I want to give myself to that. I want to be the first fruits in, in where I'm living where a whole new beginning of things that are taken and I'm at, the, I'm at the heart of it. I'm there. And Lord, we, we desperately need this in Lebanon. And of course, there's others that come, and, and there's those that are watching this on the computer, but why, why are we here? James begins by saying, don't be distracted. That's all the enemy wants. He's not going to come to us and say, worship me. He's never going to come to me and say, rob a bank. He's going to distract me with things that just don't matter. I'm going to get consumed with things that just don't matter. They're not bad, but how do you interpret bad? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask you this, this evening. A couple things. First, what in your life defines you that does not come from him? And I got a phenomenal opportunity for you. You, and you've heard it. <laughs> But you don't have to live like that anymore. That does not have to be who you are. And it's not trying not to be like that or releasing it. It's just, it happened. I'm wrapping my arms around Jesus and that will consume me. He will consume me. What are you currently consumed with? I really do believe that what Nathan said tonight was so spot on. All the addiction stuff that we wrestle with, all of that's a product of just getting distracted from Jesus. We want to open up an uh, opportunity for you to seek. We do this. We all gather around the altar. You understand, there is, this is a big deal. I mean, this is a big deal. We're kneeling at an altar. When God moved in the life of Jacob, he built an altar knelt before it. It was, a, it was a significant place and time that marked the movement of God in his life. We have that here for you.
Are you living distracted? Will you give yourself? Would you live by a whole new standard? James is reminding us of that. So we're going to spend some time seeking and praying in a few minutes. Dr. Manley's going to close us, give us some instruction about tomorrow morning. But would you come? I mean, recklessly abandon yourself to the plan and dreams and call that he has for your life specifically, where you're living in your specific context. It's your call to ministry.